Turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 717. Isaiah chapter 42. In the pew Bibles, it's on page 717. Let me read the first seven verses. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help me now to preach on this text. I'm so utterly inadequate and powerless to do anything. It's only your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that can enable the true preaching of the Word. And more importantly, it's only your Holy Spirit that enables the true hearing of the Word. Lord, all of us, including me, our, our ears and our eyes and our minds are just abuzz with the stuff and busyness of life. So I pray that the Holy Spirit might cut through that and speak to the deep parts of our hearts. So Lord, enable us to speak and hear your Word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, can you believe it's less than uh, two weeks until the presidential election? <clears throat> I don't need the stress in my life, I'll tell you that. Uh, it's been bad enough staying up all night for the past week watching the Red Sox and the Yankees. I'm exhausted, and uh, I disciplined myself. Well, my wife helped me discipline myself last night, and I turned it off at 10 so I could get up this morning and preach. But, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be exhausted this week. Uh, so, you know, to throw on top of that a presidential election, I mean, I'm just going to be so stressed out like two weeks from now. But at least the presidential debates are over. We have that to be thankful for. I don't know, maybe some of you get into the debates. The debates frustrate me to no end for, for a lot of reasons, uh, not least of which is the fact that they're not really debates. You know, it's kind of a soundbite contest. Who can come up with the best one-liner? And, you know, there's not really a substantive analysis of, of, of issues. It's, that's kind of frustrating. You know, another thing that I just find so strange, and I feel so bad for the candidates, is, are the questions that they have to field. You know, a moderator or maybe someone from the audience, if it's one of those town meeting debates, will stand up and raise some gargantuan issue, some huge international or national conundrum, and throw it at the candidate and say, how do you plan to fix that? And then the candidate will stand there behind the podium and say, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. First we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do that, and I'm going to fix that, and that's going to take care of it. You know, you're like, wow, that's amazing. I, I, you know, they'll throw up problems like, I don't know, making Social Security solvent. 
or defeating global terrorism or uh, getting health care insurance and medical costs under control. And say, you know, what are you going to do? And, and the guy will stand there and very confidently give an answer. Well, we're going to have this program or we're going to spend more on this or we're going to do that. And, you know, I'm just going, I, I can't fix the door on my kitchen cabinet that leads to the underneath the sink. I, that thing's been hanging funny for about four months. I tried to fix it once. It got worse. I mean, I can't imagine how you would fix things like nuclear proliferation in North Korea and Iran. <laughs> but, you know, what are these guys going to do? Are they going to stand up there and say, yeah, that's a mess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do about that. I don't know. Well, do you know anything? I don't know. I mean, so They've got to say something. They have to act confident. That's part of the whole game. But <laughs> now, imagine... It, to, Allow me to take you off the deep end here, and let's just let our imaginations run wild. Let's pretend there were three podiums at the debate. And, you know, you got one guy on the right, the other guy on the left. And then at the middle podium is not Ralph Nader, nor is it another candidate. Imagine if at the middle podium is God. And God is at the debate, which would, of course, be a pretty marvelous thing. And the moderator sees God and says, wow, I'm going to... I'm going to give God a zinger because, you know, it's God after all. I might as well just ask him the hardest question I can think of. So he says, all right, God, here's my question for you. How do you propose to fix the world? You know, I mean everything, God, because you know, God, this is a messed up world. It's messed up internationally. We struggle with uh, conflict and, and difficulties all over the globe. The UN, you know, it, it's got its struggles. There's corruption, scandals, and probes going on there. Our own nation has its issues. And not even just at the national level, state levels, communities, school districts have problems. I mean, all the way down, even our own families. Um, my family has problems, God. And you know, if I was real honest, I realized that all the problems stem from within ourselves. That deep within our hearts, there's something off. So, Lord, how do you plan to fix all of that? And I can imagine God saying, I'm glad you asked. And what we have, essentially, in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, is the, the thumbnail sketch, the basic blueprint, of God's plan to fix it all. To bring wholeness and salvation to this broken world. How is God going to do that? Is God ever going to do it? Yes. Will this world always be as twisted as it is now? No. God is going to fix this world. How are you going to do it, God? Here's his plan, verse, chapter 42, verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. God's plan is a person. Isn't that interesting? It's a person. That's how God proposes to straighten it all out with this, this servant. In fact, I think a better translation is behold my servant. Not here is my servant. Behold my servant. This is kind of presentation language. It's like in that little kid's uh, animated movie, The Lion King. I don't know if you've seen it or your kids, your grandkids or whatever, but there's a scene at the beginning where they, they get the new lion cub who's going to be the next king of the pride and they, they lift him up on this high rock and they hold him up and all the animals are gathered around and they all go... And they also they squawk and they, they bow before the new king and he's presented, he's lifted up. And, and that's kind of what God is doing here in chapter 42. Behold, check it out. This is my servant. This is my solution. A person, a servant. If you think about it, that fits the way God works throughout human history. How has God advanced his agenda 
down through human history. How has he pushed his plans forward? Well, he uses people. He uses individuals. He uses servants who will submit themselves to God and do whatever God says. Whether it's Abraham or Moses or Deborah or King David or Queen Esther or Isaiah the prophet was one of those servants. Mary, the mother of Jesus, a 15, 14-year-old girl, whatever she was, who said, as the Lord says, that's what I'm going to do. That's amazing. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul. God uses individuals down through human history who are willing to say, God, your will be done and I'll do whatever it is. That's how God moves his plans forward through people. <clears throat> of course, the problem with those people are uh, is that none of them are perfect. They're all sinners. And that's kind of the ironic thing is that the people that God uses to fix the problem are actually part of the problem. And that's kind of the, the interesting thing about serving God is that you know you're not worthy. You know that you're part of the problem and yet somehow God uses you as part of the solution, which is a very strange thing. Uh, it causes us to live by faith in Him. But God says, I'm going to raise up a servant. Not just a servant small s, a servant capital S. The servant, the quintessential servant, the servant par excellence who will do my will. He is my chosen one in whom... I delight. God's plan is a person. The person. That's how he plans to fix it. And again, I, I just think it's so strange because that's not the kinds of things that we propose. When we want to solve problems, we, we say we need a new committee. We need a, a new budget line item. We need more money. We need a new study group. We need uh, more education. We need more discussion and dialogue. And, and this is how we kind of put things together. Uh, is there a place for all of those things? Of course. They have their place. But will any of those things cure the fundamental disease that warps the human race? No. They won't cure it. The only one who can do that in God's plan is the servant. Here is my servant whom, I'm uphold, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And here's the, the mission of the, the Messiah, the mission of the servant. And he will bring justice to the nations. We get this mission repeated down at verse 3. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. So the servant's job, the Messiah's job, is to bring justice. Now when we see the word justice there, we have to think bigger than just courtroom justice. That's certainly part of it, that, that the courts would be fair. But it's bigger than that. When God's talking about justice here, he means making the world function the way God designed the whole world to function. In other words, things being the way God planned them to be. Us being in a right relationship with God, us being in a right relationship with one another. From the highest levels of government all the way down to families and societies and churches and in our own hearts being the way that God made them to be for righteousness and, and God's holiness to reign over the whole earth. That's the justice that we're talking about. In other words, fixing the whole thing. So that's the plan. This Messiah, this servant, is going to put the world back together the way God planned it to. We go, well, okay, uh, how are you going to do that? I mean, that's, already this is so far beyond what we would imagine doing. This is God's plan. So how is he going to do it? What, what is the method by which God is going to bring justice to the nations? And that's what's in verses 2 to 3. And this is where it really gets different. This is where things take an interesting twist that I certainly never would have imagined. What is God's method for accomplishing the mission of bringing justice? Verse 2 and 3. He will not shout or cry out 
or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God's methodology for accomplishing righteousness and order and defeating evil in the world is meekness. It's gentleness. It's humility and mercy and compassion. Look at it. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to come, you know, here I am, the Messiah's here, hold a pep rally, hold a press conference, get the word out. I'm here, everybody pay attention to me. No, no, no. He's not going to say a word. In fact, when this king comes to set up his kingdom, you've got to be paying attention because it could happen and you might totally miss it. It could happen right under your nose and if you're not looking for it, it might go right past you and you wouldn't even see it. That's how humble and meek this king will be in establishing the kingdom of God on earth. Or it says in verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Uh, God is not going to uh, come and sort of bowl people over and knock things down when he comes. No, this Messiah, he's so gentle and tender that if he finds a little piece of grass that's bent over, he's going to protect it. The little things and the hurting things and the humble things won't get trampled in his march to victory. Just the opposite. He's going to accomplish his purposes through compassion and tenderness. And again, this is so not the way I would conceive of him doing it. If I were to think of a Messiah who is going to come and fix this world, I would think of some kind of, you know, vigilante. I would think of like a John Wayne or an Arnold Schwarzenegger or like the guy from the comic books, The Punisher. You know, some, some guy who takes vengeance into his own hands and cuts through the red tape, cuts through all the bureaucracy and all that baloney and just says, I'm going to fix it. We're going to straighten things out. It made me think of, I think of that movie, uh, uh, Walking Tall. I don't know if you ever heard of this movie. It was actually remade just this year with uh, World Wrestling Federation's hero, The Rock, which I, I guess I didn't see it. It's sort of a poor remake, apparently. But it's based upon an original movie that was made in 1973, and it was, which is, I guess is based on a true story. It's about a sheriff in Tennessee, great Tennessee name. The sheriff's name is Buford Pusser. Buford Pusser is this sheriff in Tennessee, and he comes to his hometown, and it's gone corrupt. Organized crime is there, prostitution, extortion, gambling. And Buford Pusser, the new sheriff, comes into town, and he doesn't like it. He's not going to work through the regular channels. He's going to straighten up his town. So do you remember what uh, Bu Buford Pusser's weapon of choice is? Does anyone remember? Yeah. Big two-by-four. That's right. That's what Buford Pusser says. He's like, you know... You know, we're going to straighten out this town. I don't know if it's this big, but it's what I found in my basement. So, yeah. and, and that's it. And he's not going to sit around and go through all the legal channels and stuff. He just walks into the casinos and pow, and walks into the corrupt back rooms and smack, you know. And, and we love movies like that because it's like, finally, somebody's taking care of all the garbage that we know that's out there. And they're not going to pussyfoot around and worry about people's feelings and be sensitive. They're just going to straighten it out. Like, oh, I love that. You know, there's a part of us that just wants to see it fixed. Straight away, no messing around. Pick up the two-by-four, someone go in there and just do it. But that's not how this, this Messiah is going to come. He's, he's going to come quietly. He will not shout or cry out. A bruised reed, he will not break. I mean, this guy is more likely to get cracked by the two-by-four than swing it himself. How are you going to do this? How are you going to bring about the reign of God on earth 
through meekness and humility and compassion and forbearance and tenderness. It just doesn't make sense. But that's how he's going to do it. And that is, in fact, how Jesus Christ did it. Christ came in humility. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the second person of the Trinity didn't come in some huge, explosive, glorious theophany. When Jesus came, He came in human flesh. And He was born not in the imperial palace in Rome or even the Herodian palace in Judah. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem. You know, And the people who came to see Him were a bunch of stinky shepherds. That's who came to see this great king. And where did he grow up? He grew up in Nazareth. I'm going to tell you, if Jesus didn't grow up in Nazareth, you never would have known there was a Nazareth. That's how podunk this village was where Jesus grew up. He moves nowhere. You don't go to Nazareth. You're either born there or you don't really go there because it's just a little village. His parents were peasants, Mary and Joseph. And, and even when Jesus came in those humble circumstances, he didn't announce himself right away. I mean, for 30 years, what did he do? He just worked in his dad's carpenter shop, sequestered away, making, I don't know what, birdhouses or chairs or something. And he's come to save the world and he spent the first 30 years, you know, making woodwork, you know, in the wood shop, playing around with dowels and cutting wood and sanding things. Like, come on, get out there, do your great mission. Well, finally the time came for him to do his great mission of changing the world. And now it's time for the press conference, right? Now it's time for the pep rally. Let's get the word out. Let's do the advertising blitz. No. How does he announce himself? Well, he goes to the Jordan River where people have come to see John the Baptist, people confessing their sins, humbling themselves before God. And he just kind of stands in the crowd, waits in line. None of this, I'm the Messiah, excuse me, Messiah's here, if you just step aside. None of that. He just waits in line, waits for his turn to come to the Jordan River. And finally it's his turn and he he goes down to the Jordan River and John the Baptist gives him one of these double takes. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not supposed to be baptizing you. I think you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is the way we're going to do it, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to make this world right and to bring about God's righteousness in this world. I'm not going to come as the king and set myself up on a throne right away. Instead, I'm going to identify myself with the humble and the broken and the repentant even though Jesus didn't have anything for which he needed to repent. He identified himself with the smoldering wicks and the broken reeds. And he was baptized. And then the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. You know the whole story. The king was crowned. That's what that was, was the, the anointing of oil on the king. Now the Holy Spirit comes down on the new king. And he begins his public ministry. Maybe now he'll push himself forward and announce his greatness to the world. No. He doesn't push himself into the center of the spotlight. He doesn't go toward the places of power. Instead, where does he go? To the fringes of society. And he begins building his kingdom with all these people. You, could, you would never imagine the kingdom being built among them. You know, um, They call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He goes out and talks to hookers. He, he embraces and hugs you know, stinking, festering lepers. And he goes to you know, blind people and people who can't walk, people who in an agrarian culture are definitely useless to the society. And, and that's where he's hanging out. And, you know, if you want to see this king, don't, don't go to the, the halls of government in Jerusalem. You've got to go out in the little no-name villages where he's touching people who are outcast. I mean, that's how he operates. In fact, let's just look at one little story of that. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 12. If you just turn there really briefly with me. Matthew chapter 12. 
It's on page 966, if you're using your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 12. Let me just read verses 9 and following. little snapshot of Jesus doing his thing. This is the story of when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. And as you know, that didn't sit well with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Uh, the, the Pharisees had all these rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. The Bible said, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't do any work. Fine. But then the Pharisees made up this huge pile of man-made rules about what it means to not work on the Sabbath. And, and so they ha- and it, was kind of, it became this uh, really method of religious control. By, by developing all these legalistic human traditions and rules, they, they use it as leverage and, and almost political and uh, religious control over people. And Jesus didn't sit for any of that. So in verse 9, it says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a, a shriveled hand was there. And looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, they're getting into the minutia of their religious traditions. Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? I mean, of course. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You guys have lost the whole point of God's laws. They were intended to help us love God and love one another. And somehow you've missed the whole point, and now you're so worried about the the minute interpretation of your human traditions that you can't even be happy if some guy gets healed on the Sabbath. You've lost the focus. You've taken your eye off the ball. You've missed the forest for the trees. You know, that whole thing. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so the man stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The contrast couldn't be greater. You know, they go out and they form a committee. Murder committee. All right, here's a committee. Here's our task. Kill Jesus. Chairman? Okay. Vice chairman? You be the secretary. You the treasurer. Okay. All right, how are we going to do it? And they, they form this committee to kill Jesus. They, they pick up the two-by-four, basically, and they say, we don't want this Jesus around. They, they use worldly means of getting things done, and they pick up the two-by-four to, to go whack this guy. Uh, no, we do the same thing. We do the same thing in our workplaces. We do the same thing in families. We form little groups and teams. Unfortunately, it even happens in the church. You know, we form unofficial committees in the church. <clears throat> they're not in the bylaws, and they're not in the Constitution, but we form them anyway. <laughs> We don't like something. We don't like somebody. We don't like how something's done. And, and, and so we get mad and we say, okay, who's with me? You with me? You with me? You with me? Okay, you're not with me? Okay, you're over there. All right, how are we going to do this? And, and that's what happens in, in all kinds of churches everywhere. It's just human nature. It's human nature to use worldly means of accomplishing tasks, even inside the church. We, we slip back into it easily. The church is always at its worst when allied with worldly means of power and accomplishing tasks. Out throughout human history, whenever the church goes bad, it's when it's almost allied with the government or somehow uses worldly power. The church is always the purest and the most potent when it's persecuted by worldly power. That's when the church is shining like the sun is when you think it's going to get snuffed out by worldly persecution. Check it out throughout, throughout the history of the church. It seems to always be the case. And so Jesus... Verse 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Is Jesus a coward? Is Jesus wimping out? Is he afraid? No, no, he's no coward. 
Look, he stood up to the Pharisees. He said his piece. But the point is, he didn't come to form a different committee. He didn't come and say, okay, you're going to try to kill me? Fine, let's see how we do about that. Hey, everybody, the Pharisees are trying to kill me. What do you say? We form a, ro- a mob. Come on, we're going to take Jerusalem. We're going to clean out the Pharisees. I mean, he could have started a riot. He could have started a revolution. He could have used force. And there were people who wanted him to do it. But that wasn't how this king was going to set up his kingdom. He withdrew. Many followed him and he healed all their sick. And I love verse 16. Check this out. Warning them not to tell who he was. Hey, hey, come here. I'm going to heal you. But it's just going to be between the two of us, okay? So shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> you know, like I said, if I, if I had a gift of healing like that, you know, I'd start a TV ministry or something. But, you know, not Jesus. He, he just says, we're going to do this quietly. I'm just going to heal you. No one's going to know. And that's how he healed their sick. If Jesus was here today, you probably wouldn't see him on the O'Reilly Factor or Larry King Live or 60 Minutes touting his ministry. If you wanted to find him today, I don't know where he'd be. Maybe somewhere like you know, AIDS wards, 12-step meeting, looking for people who are smoldering and broken and saying, hey, I've got something even better than sobriety to give you. How about salvation? How about new life? How about eternal life? And he'd be calling the broken to himself if you wanted to find him today. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the nations will put their hope. So that's how Jesus ministered until it finally came time for him to strike the decisive blow for the kingdom of God, to go to the cross. And even then, it was the ultimate act of humility and mercy and tenderness. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 26, just over a few chapters. Chapter 26, we'll look at verse 47. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' passion. If any of you have seen that movie, The Passion, this is... This is like where the movie starts, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying. Verse 47. Matthew 26, 47. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and two-by-fours sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, who we know is Peter, good old ready, fire, aim Peter, uh, Peter steps forward for his sword, drew it, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Peter grabs for his two-by-four. He says, you know, this isn't right. And he's right. It's not right. They're attacking Jesus. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Well, I'm, for one, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. I am not going down without a fight. And so Peter reaches into his sheath and he pulls out his sword, his two-by-four, and he just, you know, swings it and some poor guy loses his ear. And, you know, Peter is, is trying to accomplish justice through worldly means, through violence. And 
And Jesus says in verse 52, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then verse 53, I love this verse. Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, look, I could nuke the world right now. It's not a big deal. Peter, I mean, if you want the world straightened out, I could just give a whistle and it would be Sodom and Gomorrah, day of judgment for the whole earth, just like that. The problem is, if Christ were to call the angels at that moment and bring judgment on the world, nobody would be saved because he hadn't gone to the cross. Nobody would be saved yet. And he came to save. He didn't come to judge, even though he could have and it would have been totally right if at that point Jesus had called down the angels and that would have been it. He would have been completely justified because we deserve judgment for our sins. Christ had the ultimate uh, two-by-four in his hands. I mean, if anyone had the two-by-four who could mete out justice in the world, Christ had it. He had that two-by-four of judgment. He could have swung it and smashed the world. But instead, what did he do with the, the rod of divine justice? What did he do with the... the stick of divine retribution and wrath. They put it on his own shoulders, right? He laid it on himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, the iniquity of us all. That was God's plan. So Christ carried and endured the judgment that I should be enduring. He took my cross and my, my place. And so today, God's kingdom continues to advance. Never stop. Jesus died on the cross. That was not the end of it. That was just the beginning. The kingdom of God is exploding around the world today. And you go, exploding? Where? I, don't, I haven't heard about it on the news. What kingdom of God? What do you mean? Hey, you're not going to hear about it on the news. It's quiet. The kingdom of God is advancing in the world today just as quietly as it first came. Here's how it's advancing. A person here. A person there. Somebody in South Korea. Some lady in Brazil. Some person in a pew on Main Street in Hingham. That's how it's happening as uh, Charles Spurgeon said, people are not saved by the basketfuls. They're saved one by one. And God is slowly but surely winning his kingdom, heart by heart, soul by soul. Some guy kneeling down in his cubicle at work because he finally realizes he needs Christ. Some kid sharing his faith with another kid after school. That's where the kingdom of God is being built. Slowly but surely, imperceptibly, quietly. Do you have Christ? Do you know Christ? Does He live within you? Are you following Christ? Do you love Him? Have you trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Or do you still think that there's some other way? Like trying to be a good person, trying to, to do it better, trying to be a more religious person. Maybe if I do this ritual or that ritual or go to this church, that'll be enough. Morality and religion isn't what make us right with God. Morality and religion should be what come out of us once we are right with God, but it's not how you get there. It's the effect, not the cause. The cause is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone is what saves us. Have you put your faith in Christ alone? 
and trusted in Him and had your sins forgiven. Because today Christ offers forgiveness. Will He come back someday with the two-by-four? Actually, yes. It is second coming. It's not going to be a hush-hush, quiet thing. He'll come with glory. The whole world will see it. He'll come with power. He'll come to smash those who, rep- who don't turn to Him. But today, He comes with nail-pierced hands offering forgiveness. Today is the time to turn to Christ and believe in Him. He came to take care of smoldering wicks like me and uh, bruised reeds like you. Bruised and smoldering from our own sins and from the sins that others have committed against us. And Christ came to save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so beautiful and attractive and glorious. And Lord, the more you humbled yourself and the more they beat you and the more they disfigured you, strangely, the more attractive and glorious you became. Your kingdom came not through power and force, but through sacrifice and humility. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. You alone are God. And now as we come to the communion table, I pray that you'd help us to see your glory afresh, to really worship you, to truly come to your feet and to bow before you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you turn to number 300?